And so we ask now that you would open our ears to hear. Allow us to see the joy of the gospel in Malachi 2. Thank you for providing a high priest to us in Jesus. Grant us to recognize our need for him and to so praise you more. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, so I invite you to turn with me to the book of Malachi. We're going to be in chapter 2. That's the last book of the Old Testament. So it's right uh, about three-fourths of the way uh, through your Bible, right before the Gospel of uh, Matthew. Malachi chapter 2, as we mentioned this morning, we are continuing our uh, intermittent sermon series through the book of Malachi. Here and there, as we preach through John, we are going to uh, get all the way through Malachi as well. And if you... Uh, are just joining us, or since it has been a while, as a refresher, you will remember that uh, Malachi is the last speaking, uh, writing prophet before Christ comes. Malachi, the prophet, shows up on the scene after the Babylonian exile. So the people of Judah are back in their home. Of course, they're not an independent kingdom anymore. They're just a province of the Persian Empire. But the Jews were allowed to resettle, rebuild Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. What's more, uh, the exile at one level seemed to, seemed to have worked, right? The, the Jews were uh, struggling with idolatry, uh, infected with idolatry, and God eventually brought the curses of Deuteronomy on them in full with the exile. But uh, the Jews living in Jerusalem after the exile were no longer struggling with pagan idolatry, You no longer had altars to Baal or Asherah or Dagon or Marduk or any of the other uh, pretenders. And the people were blessed in their return. They had favor with their rulers. They were protected from antagonistic neighbors. The prophets spurred them on through discouragement. And they had godly leadership in Ezra and Nehemiah. So the Jews found themselves with everything they needed to be fruitful and faithful in their covenant with the one true God, Yahweh, Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven. And so all was good, and they were faithful and true and lived happily ever after. Not quite. You know, you know the story. When Malachi is sent on the scene, the people were unfaithful and apathetic in their covenant with God. Though they weren't uh, openly worshiping Baal, they were not faithfully following Yahweh. So Malachi comes with a burden from the Lord. He comes to challenge the people with the very words of God. And you'll remember that God opened the entire oracle by declaring his love for the people. I have loved you, says the Lord. The Lord loved the people, as he demonstrated, with an electing love. He chose them when he could have had someone else. There's nothing in Israel. He distinguished between them and the nations. He preserved them even as he destroyed Edom and would destroy the rest of the nations. And he would ultimately open their eyes to see his glory. He would take away their blindness and let them see and savor and marvel at the glory and fame of God's great name. They would enjoy the fullness of the wonder of their creator. But as we saw last time in Malachi, God followed up his declaration of love with a harsh wake-up call. For God then said, I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
I am not delighting in what you are now and how you are relating to me. The problem that God highlighted at the end of Malachi 1 was costless worship. The people gave their least. And with their efforts, they proclaimed God to not be that glorious, not that worthy of honor, not that awe-inspiring. So even as they came and participated in public worship, even as they said with their mouths, God be praised, their half-hearted, costless worship was despicable in God's eyes. I have no pleasure in you. And as we considered last time, this, this is not a statement of total covenantal rejection, at least not yet. God is not saying they are outside of the covenant. Their bad worship was occasioned by their lack of recognition of God's glory. But to be in that state is not inconsistent with being loved by God. As we made clear in the first part of Malachi 1, God's love chooses the blind and shows them mercy by taking those who do not recognize his glory, who do not see it, and he fixes that. That's part of what it means to know his love. He gives sight to people who are blind to his glory. And so that means just because your eyesight is dim does not mean you are outside the scope of God's love. God's love assumes that your eyesight is dim. His love clears the eyes and opens the heart. And part of the way that God opens eyes and fixes hearts is that he addresses the hearts of those whom he loves with stern admonishments like we find in the book of Malachi. And today, God continues the admonishment in the second chapter of Malachi. Initially, God addressed the priest back in chapter 1, verse 6. But as we saw as we worked our way through that text, his challenge extended beyond just the priests. It was the people who bring the defiling sacrifices, and they were culpable for that. And God ends up addressing them as well for the latter chunk of chapter 1. The priests and the people were both culpable the people for bringing their blind, lame, and costless sacrifices, and the priests in allowing what the priests did, what the people were doing, and not doing their jobs and representing God by rebuking and instructing the people. And in 2.1, God refocuses attention specifically on the priests. And the entirety of our text this morning is addressed to them in the specifics of their ministry. So as I I promised last time, we'll discuss the priests and the priesthood a bit more fully now. It's important to understand their ministry and role uh, in order to understand how this text applies, both to the people that Malachi would have been speaking to and to us who are reading and hearing it today. So this morning, I I will not take for granted that we all even know what a a priest is. People ask me all the time uh, if I'm a priest. Literally Friday morning, I was playing tennis, and my opponent, uh, on a break, said, so you're a, you're a priest, right? And I would remember meeting my dad's friends in China, and they said, is this the son that's the, the priest, right? The pri-? I don't know why, but I've gotten this gesture many times, like, you're the you're priest? For many people, priest and pastor are synonyms. Which one you use just depends on denominational tradition, There is actually a very important distinction. In the Old Testament, priests oversaw the entire temple ministry. Priests were representatives, go-betweens, mediators between God and the people. 
The priests would facilitate the sacrifices. They would bring the blood and the incense into the temple before the specially manifested presence of God. The high priest is the one who would go into the inner, inner room, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And he only did this once a year on the Day of Atonement, where he represented the whole of the people and made atonement for them. You, the people, would bring the sacrifice, but the priest walked you through what to do and then made the atonement and went into the presence of God on your behalf. The priests were mediators. You couldn't just approach the presence of God. You could not enter into the holy place and certainly not into the holy of holies. Only the priest could do that for you. As we saw when studying Leviticus in Sunday school, this entire ritual system was an elaborate series of symbols meant to teach people about the holiness of God. Because of our sin, we cannot just approach God as He is. There needs to be atonement made for us. Our sin needs to be dealt with, and there needs to be mediation. There needs to be someone to approach God for us. So the Levitical priests were the mediators between God and man in a ritual system. Because of that, it was also part of their job description to teach the people about what all these rituals meant. It was their job to explain why they existed, what was clean and unclean, why there was clean and unclean, when you needed to sacrifice, what you needed to sacrifice, why you needed to sacrifice. They were to explain all the other civil and moral laws The priests were to know the law, know what the law was saying about God, and help lead the people in being faithful to that law. When Aaron, the first high priest, and his sons were ordained, they were told, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. We heard from Deuteronomy that the priests were supposed to adjudicate disputes and tricky cases. Because they were supposed to know the law. They were supposed to know the word of God. The priests had an important symbolic function as mediators between God and man. They performed the sacrificial rituals. They were supposed to teach the people the significance of all of it. And in all the the significance of all of it. And all the ritual and all the moral, all the civil laws. The priests were supposed to be the mediators. What about the New Testament though? We are not under the Old Covenant. And this is a very important point. There are no official priests, plural, in the New Testament. That is, there is not an office called priest in the official structure of the church, be it the local church or any sort of denominational structure. When Paul writes to Timothy and Titus and explains the qualifications for the officers in the church, there are only two offices, that of the elder, the pastor, and the deacon. And the elder, the pastor, is not a priest. The pastor is called many things in Scripture. Elder, shepherd, teacher, overseer, bishop. But never a priest. And that's, that's telling, given how important the priestly ministry was in the Old Testament. And given that there is some conceptual overlap between priests and pastors, it is telling that pastors are never called priests. It's not just an accident of language. Pastors are not official mediators between God and man. Pastors do not offer atonement for sins or perform any ritual sacrifices. In the New Testament, there is only one priest, 
singular. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus' role as the final priest is elaborated on most clearly in Hebrews. We'll read portions of it here just to give you a, a taste of how the New Testament views the priestly ministry. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those old high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the final high priest. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the one that the whole ritual Levitical system was meant to get us to. His ministry was what the symbols in Leviticus were all about. Jesus is better than any Levitical priest because Jesus is untouched by sin, undefeated by death, and he can actually go into the inner places of heaven, not just some tent that was set up to represent heaven. He actually can go into the very inner courts of heaven and make intercession on our behalf. His blood was a sacrifice actually able to atone for sin and death, actually able to cleanse us. Jesus is the high priest of a new covenant made in his blood. And if we are covered by his priestly ministry, if his shed blood is applied to us, which happens when we turn to him in faith, then we are members of the new covenant. When we believe in Jesus, we become his covenant people. So in the new covenant, which the old covenant symbolized and pointed to, Jesus is the only official priest. There is indeed a deep theological divide between the Catholics and us. It's not just a terminological difference. It's not just tradition. We reject identifying any man today claiming to perform a sacrificial, intercessory, official priestly role. Only Jesus fulfills that role. 
Through Christ, you have access to God. You do not need any other man. But there is overlap between the priest and the pastors in that the pastor is meant to be a teaching role. Pastors are meant to teach God's word to the people and to be faithful in teaching. We do this by expositing the word of God, shepherding the people to the great high priest. Not only did Jesus fulfill the sacrificial ministry of Leviticus, he fulfilled the teaching ministry. He perfectly taught the word of God as God's perfect representative. He did this perfectly because he is God himself. God's word made manifest. God clothed in human flesh. And so pastors, it's their job to teach the words of Christ, who is himself the perfect teacher. Pastors are supposed to teach the scriptures in accordance with the good news of Jesus, who provides the key to understanding all of it. A pastor's job is to exposit the full counsel of God, explaining all the history and ritual and moral commands in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's their ministry calling. That's their teaching ministry calling. That's what a pastor should be. So, introduction to the sermon over. I understand that was quite a, a sidebar, but still good for us to remember. And with that bit of context firmly in place, we can now hear our text rightly. So let's, let's get back to the specifics of Malachi. Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. Listen as I read the text in its entirety. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Our text this morning is a message of rebuke to the failing priests in the Old Covenant. It challenges them, particularly with regard to their failing teaching ministry. Now, rhetorically, it, it opens, you heard, with the threatened punishment for their failure in verses 1 through 4. This is kind of like when kids are being bad, and the first thing mom and dad says when they confront them is, you are this close to being grounded before they even get to what they're doing wrong. The severity of the threatened punishment is highlighted so the kids will listen to the corrective that the parents are about to offer. And the threatened punishment for the priests is as severe as it can possibly get. Then our text moves into a description of the beauties of what the priestly ministry can and should be in verses 5 and 7. 
5 through 7. It offers both shame and hope to the listeners. And then the text closes in verses 8 through 9 with the official charge against the priests. You have corrupted the covenant. What, what exactly are they doing wrong? Verses 8 and 9 make the whole issue concrete. So you have in this passage what the priests will be if they don't shape up, what the priests should be, and what the priests currently are. And we're going to walk through these three ideas in the rhetorical order. We have them in the text. Then we'll close thinking through some applications. So, so look again, particularly at verses 1 through 4, what the priests will be. Look at this threatened punishment. Now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your festivals, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. If you do not change course, O priest, there is judgment coming for you. And remember, the priests weren't priests of Baal. They were priests of Yahweh, the one true God. They were serving God in name. That's such an important contextual reminder. You can serve God in name without any outward allegiance to another God and still be guilty of sin that merits this type of threatened judgment. You can profess allegiance to God and still not give honor to his name. Remember, it's, that's the key issue in all of Malachi. God's revealing of his glory is how his love will work out. And the problem of, the sin, of our sin is our failure to see God's glory, to honor him as we should in our hearts and in our witness to the surrounding world. We don't treat God as glorious and we imply to our neighbors that God isn't glorious. And that ingratitude is wickedness. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. For those priests, priests of Yahweh, that persist in failing to honor God's name, for those who persist in their blindness to God's glory, God says he will curse them. He will curse their blessings. The priests would, would perform benedictions, just like we do here at the end of service. The priests would give words of blessing. God is saying he will not honor those words. He will not back up the blessing with any action or power. God will empty their ministry of power. And that's just the first phase of what God says. He continues with, I will spread dung on your face, the dung of your offerings in the ESV. When God says he will spread dung, he is talking about a a specific part of the sacrificial animal. When the animal is slaughtered and then butchered, depending on the type of sacrifice, you had different things to do with the different portions of meat, but you also had things like the stomach's residual contents, the intestine, and the dung. The technical term for these things is the gross bits. The parts of the animal that, according to Leviticus, the priest would carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and burn it upon a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. You don't burn that on the altar to God. You don't cook that and eat it. You don't even burn it in a trash pile anywhere in the courtyard of the temple. 
You take those gross bits outside the camp, outside the city, and you burn them in a designated trash pile. God is going to take that stuff, the disgusting waste, and smear it on the face of the priests. It isn't just the gross bits of any offerings. I'm, I'm not quite sure why the ESV went with such a generic word. This is not the Hebrew word for offering. It is the Hebrew word for festival. A quick perusal of all other major English translations show that they all opt for something like festival sacrifices or feasts. The dung of your festivals. The dung of your feasts. God is going to take the dung from the sacrifices that you offer on your feast days, on the great holidays from Leviticus, Passover, Tabernacles, Day of Atonement, weeks. He's going to smear that dung on your face. In a time when there should be celebration and joy, God will bring shame and destruction. For you remember, what do you do with the gross bits? You took them outside the camp and you burned them. God is going to smear the dung on the faces of the unfaithful priests. As he says at the end of verse 3, you shall be taken away with it. You will be taken outside the camp and burned with it. This is a warning of covenant termination. This is a warning of final judgment. If you will not take the warning to heart, I will turn all your false, unrighteous, unfounded joy in your pseudo-worship to me, and I will turn it into public shame, and I will destroy you. The festivals of Leviticus were meant to symbolize the richness of fellowship with Yahweh. And Yahweh says to the priests, your participation in all of this is a sham. And I will not let you continue to enjoy the visible public joys of the covenant. I will destroy you. The point, as we see in verse 4, is so, in other words, this judgment will stand. It will happen. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you that, in order that, for the purpose that my covenant with Levi may stand. God wants the covenant with Levi to stand, which is not to say that he wants the external administration or the shape of it to continue forever. It was always a picture, but he wants what he purposed in it to come to fruition, which it never will if the priests of the covenant are faulty, which leads us to the next section, verses 5 through 7, what the priests should be. Here God establishes why he, he, he built the Levitical priesthood. Why he ordained it. My covenant with him, with Levi, Levi being spoken of representatively here for all the priests, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. Many from guilt, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priests were supposed to fear God, to stand in awe of his name. In doing that, true teaching would be in their mouths. The priests would relate rightly to God and so be able to truly teach and lead the people to relate rightly to God. There is no true teaching. There is no right instruction absent fear of God, absent awe of his name. You cannot teach man about this world or how to live in it if you do not see the glory of God and desire all other people to see that glory. True instruction starts with fear. 
Proverbs says, fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Seeing and savoring the glory of God, trembling before it rightly, is the foundation for true teaching, true knowledge, true instruction. And what fruit comes from that? God says the covenant is a covenant of life and peace. What kind of life? Real life. Eternal, true life. The life we are destined for, created for. What kind of peace? Real peace. Peace with our Creator. And so preservation from all the brokenness of this fallen world that threatens to infect us with its doom. When the priests fear God, then there is to be found in their ministry life, a life of fellowship with God, friendship with God, a life that is of unmatched quality and joy and fruitfulness because it involves loving closeness with the creator of all things good and joyful and beautiful. God is the source of all real life. God is life. And the life he offers in covenant with him is a life that, like his own life that he has in himself, will never end. It is eternal and unable to be touched and destroyed by the world. In fellowship with God, he promises a peace that surpasses all understanding. He promises peace with him. Total absolution from your sins. He promises complete forgiveness. In verse 5, God says, The priest turned many from iniquity, many from guilt. He saved many from guilt. This means both that he instructed them on how to avoid future guilt, but also that he turned the wrath of God away in the atonement sacrifices and so provided a saving from guilt, a return from guilt that was already earned. The priest administered the means that God instituted to enjoy freedom from guilt. And when you have peace from God because your guilt is dealt with, that means you will ultimately have peace from the world. Because when you are God's people, when you are God's children, God not only smiles on you, he will fight for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? To know God is to know life and peace. This is what is threatened by the failure of the priests. This is what is at stake. Real life, real peace. A priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. A priest must know the word, the full significance of their ministry, and the full counsel of God, and should be someone that the people can come to so that they can get that full counsel, so that they can draw closer to God. And that, and that is the glory of the perfect priestly ministry of Christ, the one true messenger, the one unfailing priest. He perfectly taught the word of God, and he perfectly fulfilled the rest of the ministry so that all who come to him will enjoy the life and peace that God wants to bless his people with. All those Jesus represents, all who recognize him as their high priest, all those who accept Jesus as high priest, will know eternal life and unending peace. If you confess your need of a priest, if you admit your sin and ignorance and blindness to the glory of the Creator, if you turn to Jesus in faith, He will be a priest for you. And you will know life and peace. The problem with priestly failure in the Old Covenant is that it would lead people away from the true high priest who was coming. Priestly failure in Malachi's day obscured the coming of Christ. Their failure threatened to make the people not see. That's where the priests were in Malachi's day. That was the state of the priesthood. 
As we come to the final two verses in 8 and 9, we see God's assessment of them and what exactly was behind this failure, behind their failure to be faithful in their covenantal duty. So look again at the last two verses. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The failure of the Levitical priests is ultimately that they would lead people away from Jesus. If they were allowed to continue in their ministry, not founded on a recognition of the glory of God, they would draw people away. The priest would stop the people from actually being able to hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. People would be drawn away from real life, real peace. You've turned aside. God rebukes the priests for their own blindness, but it gets worse. This caused many people to stumble. This corrupts the covenant. It destroys its very purpose for existing. Now, how were the priests failing in their instruction? What specifically was going on? Well, we saw in the previous passage how the priests were not correcting the people in bringing of costless worship. And note how God elaborates on their failure in instruction, in their, in their instruction, in verses 9, right at the end of our text. You show partiality in your instruction. They were showing partiality. That's the problem summarized in one sentence. You're showing partiality in your teaching. But partiality to whom? Partiality to whomever would be best for the priest. The Hebrew idiom for showing partiality is lifting a face. It's a way of saying you you honor someone. You can lift the face of the poor. You can lift the face of the rich. It means you're partial to them. You you preference them. You honor them. Leviticus says we are to do that for neither, neither the rich or the poor. One can have a lifted face in Hebrew. It means they are an honored person. They are receiving honor from someone. They receive praise, goodwill from someone else. Naaman, the Aramean general in 2 Kings, was a great commander, and he had a lifted face with the king of Aram. And God says to the priests in verse 9, you lift faces in your teaching. Period. Full stop. Your instruction is designed to lift people's faces, to appeal to the people, to honor them. You are partial to the people. You honor people in your teaching God says to the priests, you want favor with the people. That's your driving motivation. Your instruction is informed not by looking at God and listening to him, but by looking at man and listening to them. What do they want to hear? What will please them? What will make them most pleased with me? Note how this charge, this way of framing the priestly problem, parallels how God summarized the problem back in verse 1. If you will not give honor to my name, this punishment will come. In other words, they currently weren't giving honor to his name. How are they not giving honor to God's name? By giving honor to the people instead. Telling the people, you're fine with the types of sacrifices you bring. This animal's lame. No worries. No biggie. I got you. Come in. Not a big deal. The priests were building the people up in their false worship. Why did the priests do that? There's significant motivation to do it. The people's sacrifices and contributions were also the only means of sustaining the priests. Without the people, the priests financially could not continue to exist. It was the people's job to provide for their priests, to take care of them financially. 
So it makes sense that the priests would be tempted to do things that would gain them favor with the people because the people paid the priest's bills. The priests did not give honor to God's name. They gave honor to the people they were supposed to be ministering to, and in doing that, they were actually cutting off the people from real life and real peace. Their desire to please man and not God would actually be to the destruction of those whom they were supposed to serve. So what does this have to do with us? We spent a great deal of time in the beginning saying that none of us are priests in an official office holding in the local church sort of way. So how do we take God's rebuke of the priests? If you, first, if you happen to be a non-believer here hearing this word, you have heard of the glories of the priestly ministry. You have heard of your need of a priest. You need someone to represent you to God. You can't do it yourself. You can't approach him in your sin yourself. No one here can approach him for you. I can't do it for you. But Jesus Christ is a great high priest. He is the great high priest. If you recognize your blindness, if, if, you, if any part of your conscience is tinged by hearing this word, recognizing your blindness to the glory of God, the wickedness that exists in your blindness to the glory of God, if you confess your need of a priest, of someone to represent you to God, Jesus will do that, and he does that perfectly. He will cover you with his shed blood. He will welcome you into his covenant. He will mediate on your behalf. You will be counted righteous in him. You will enjoy access to God, not through me or any other man, but through Jesus Christ himself. Secondly, and our first application to believers is... I think the most obvious one, and it's specifically to pastors, elders, shepherds of local churches. Pastors are not priests, but they do have a teaching ministry designed to lead people to Jesus Christ, similar to the way that the Levitical priestly teaching ministry was meant to lead people to the ministry of the great high priest. So the first application here is a word to pastors, to elders. And you'll note that all the other pastors and elders aren't here this morning. They were trying to avoid this. No, I'm kidding. I am confident that Tim and Paul are faithfully executing this teaching ministry at this very moment, serving other churches. But it is still an important word for us all to hear because you are, the congregation are meant to hold us accountable. The word to pastors is still worth hearing. Pastors, you ought to value the glory of God. You must value the glory of God. In your public teaching ministry, in your preaching, in your Sunday school, in your counseling, care about honoring God's name and not about pleasing the people in the pews so that they like you and stay. Do not fear man, even the one who signs your paycheck. Fear God. This doesn't mean you always have to be yelling or angry or pounding the pulpit. You don't need to be scolding or harsh. That does not necessarily mean you are honoring God. But pastor, elder, what you do need to be is faithful to the word of God, even when faced with the fear that the people don't want to hear it. What this means for your ministry, what should define your whole ministry, is a dedication to teaching the whole counsel of God in light of Jesus. Teach the whole Bible with your eyes on the center, the good news of Jesus Christ. In your ministry, reveal the gospel and apply the gospel. Preach the whole counsel and be familiar and wise to know which texts apply when you counsel and shepherd others. And then 
whether it be preaching or teaching or counseling, be faithful to the text. That means mirror the tone of the text. Be gentle when the text is gentle, encouraging when it's encouraging, and harsh and scary when it is harsh and scary. If you will not do this, pastor, if you preference people-pleasing and not God-pleasing, you are actually getting in the way of life and peace for the people you serve. And if you stand in the way of life and peace of God's people, he will not stand for it. He will fight for his people. If you ever become too much of a threat to a single one of God's chosen people, he will not hesitate to empty your ministry of all power and to destroy you. This application is still relevant, even if no pastors or elders are here to, present to hear it, because we hope and pray that there are aspiring elders in this room. We've just nominated a new elder candidate last week. We are very excited that God is blessing us by raising up more servants, and we are praying that Julian enjoys a long, fruitful ministry here. And we hope there are others here in this room now that will be raised up. So potential elders, those who aspire to the office, this is what you need to aim to be. You need to be so- someone consumed with a fear of God and concern for his honor, that over- a concern that overwhelms any fear of man you may have. To prepare to be an elder does not mean playing politicians, smoozing the congregation, winning friends, and influencing people. To prepare to be an elder, you need to dedicate yourself to the scriptures, Pray for God to reveal his glory all the more in every part of them. Pray that you are confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. And pray in all of it you will be dominated by respect and trembling before Jesus. Know your Bible and so know Jesus. That is the fundamental qualification. Pastor is not a businessman, visionary, or human resource management expert. A pastor is to be a teacher of the word of God. Let the content of your interactions with your fellow members be a steadfast fidelity to speak the truth of Scripture, no matter the opinion of the person before you. Think not about how someone might vote for you, rather think about their soul and the reality that life and peace are in Jesus. So aspiring elders, give people Jesus. This also works out in application for the whole congregation. Church, These are the type of elders you should vote in. Elders who preach God's word without fear of reprisal from you. Look for men willing to share the whole counsel even when it makes you angry at them or not want to be around them. Look for men willing to say the hard things that the Bible says. And the Bible says hard things. Look for men whom themselves want to hear all the Bible and to speak all the Bible. And as a sub-application, tell the current elders about them. Members emailed us to tell us they believe Julian should be an elder. You should do that. If you find in someone the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the scriptures, and the fidelity to teach them no matter the cost, you should make that known to the elders. When you observe those things in a man, tell us. Finally, there is another application to all believers, pastor, prospective pastor, or non-pastor. There is a direct application of this text to all believers. This is because there is one other way that the Bible speaks about priests. In the Old Testament, you had the Levitical priesthood, the official office that only the Levites occupied. But God also called all of Israel a kingdom of priests. The whole nation was a priestly nation. 
So even though all of Israel weren't priests in the Levitical official sense, they were all priests in another sense. The language of identifying the whole nation as priests was to point out how the whole nation was meant to teach the surrounding nations about God. The nation as a corporate whole had a priestly ministry to the non-believing world. That is true of the church, the people of God in all ages. The idea is explicitly picked up in the New Testament where we see the same priestly language applied to the entire church as a whole what we call the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. The New Testament says that all believers in this sense are priests. Not not in an office sense, but in the sense of fulfilling the teaching and witnessing ministry to their non-believing neighbors. The heavenly beings sing and Sing this song in Revelation. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Peter said, speaking to a group of churches, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then again, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The people of God are called to be representatives for God, ambassadors, priests, to the non-believing world. That is, all believers are called to teach the gospel to their neighbors, their co-workers, their families, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus is life and peace. You are called to give people access to life and peace. You are called to point people to the ultimate high priest, what that means, and explain that boldly to others. You're you're called to know why we call Jesus the ultimate high priest. You need to know what a priest is, why people need one, how Jesus fills that need, so that you can tell other people about him. So church, learn the Bible and preach the gospel. Take advantage of all the teaching opportunities that God has blessed us with. Come to Sunday school. Come to Wednesdays. Go to book studies. Use the abundant resources that God has blessed our church and the church in the West in general to grow in your knowledge of Scripture and thus your knowledge of Jesus Christ, His person and His work, and preach the gospel boldly. Resolve with your life to honor God's name and not your name. Put to death concern for your name. Turn people from their iniquities by telling them about those iniquities and the provision of Jesus Christ to save them. Put to death your face-lifting tendencies, your schmoozing, your self-love, your reputation concern, your desire to be liked, your desire to be respected and praised. God should be praised. So preach the gospel and bear the reproach and the shame that comes with it boldly happily, joyfully. To do anything less is to corrupt the covenant. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word to us, and we pray 
that you would grant us to hear your rebuke, to recognize the severity of what it means to fail in the ministry that you have called us to. And we thank you for your zeal, for your purposes, and for your people. We thank you that you will not allow priestly failure to derail your purposes. We thank you for judgment and wrath. We thank you for fighting for your people, for preserving them and loving them. And so we do pray now in praise to you. Thank you for providing us a high priest in Jesus. Thank you for providing us perfect priestly representation. And I pray that all of us here would trust in that. All of us here would submit ourselves in need of mediation to you and we would accept what you have provided for us in Christ. Grow us in being able to see your glory to love you and enjoy you as you ought to be, as you are in yourself. Grant us to grow in this as we continue to pray and and meditate on your word and all that you have provided to us in Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.